Hey, welcome to Plant Yourself. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Two quick announcements before we get to today's show. If you're interested in becoming a health coach, I'm offering another run due to popular demand for people who can't make 8 p.m. on Wednesday nights, Eastern Time. So we're doing another run of the program, which will meet the practicums will meet at 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, Eastern Time U.S., which means if you're in Europe or Africa, uh, that might be good for you. Also, if you're in the US and evenings aren't good and you have free time in the mornings, either 7 a.m. Uh, Pacific time or 10 to 1130 Eastern, then you can participate. If you want to find out more about becoming a wicked effective health coach, you can go to wellstartcoach.com. Second thing is, if you're not aware of it, Josh Lajani and I have a book that is free on Amazon Kindle. It's called Sick to Fit. And if you just go to Amazon and search for Sick to Fit, you'll be able to download it for free and read it on any Kindle enabled device, even a phone, smartphone, tablet, computer whatever. All right, let's get to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com and wellstarthealth.com. This podcast is part of my mission to help you live an embodied and exciting life. So how can we better ourselves without at the same time going to war with ourselves? How can we engage in self-improvement around habits of mind and habits of action without setting up a supervisor and a supervised? How can we pursue mastery without subjugating ourselves to a master, even if that master is some part of ourselves? So you can see all these questions have in common the idea that we need to split ourselves into two different parts, the one who knows and the one who doesn't know the one who wants us to improve and the one who has to improve. It sets up this duality. And can we function in duality? And is there a way to get better to improve ourselves without having to go to war, one part of us against another? Today's guest is Philip Shepard. He's the author of a book called Radical Wholeness, The Embodied Presence and the Ordinary Grace of Being. And I'm pretty sure it's the most impactful book I've read in the last 10 years. I was introduced to Philip's work by my friend and teacher, Mark Lushton, who was a guest on this podcast, episode 173, if you're interested. And about 12 pages into Radical Wholeness, I kind of felt my entire worldview shift. And it was, it was different than other spiritual books, books about non-duality and the oneness of all, in that this was very accessible, very practical, very science-based, and it didn't ask me to take anything on faith. It just reframed what I already know. And so some of the cultural blinders that have blocked my understanding of wholeness were revealed to me. And I began to understand where I was in conflict with myself and why and what I could start to do to begin to harmonize. And when I heard that Philip was offering a two day workshop about an hour's drive away from me in a couple of months, I signed up right away. And I'm so glad that I did because I showed up and I really had my mind blown open beautifully by the simplicity and the difficulty of some of the exercises we practiced. And I found Philip to be not only a provocative and lyrical author, but also an exemplary teacher and a real human being, which is not something that I always find in 
spiritual teachers. So I was very pleased, very happy and made a wonderful connection and asked him to be on this podcast and was so happy when he accepted. Because, you know, seven years ago, I worked on a book called Whole. And I've been thinking and writing and speaking and teaching about holism and reductionism in some form or other pretty much since then. And Philip's book, Radical Wholeness, is the experiential and philosophical foundation of all that work. It's a way of looking at reality, of experiencing reality in the body that puts all the research and paradigm work into context. It's the larger whole that I didn't know I was looking for. Philip's got a great story, which we'll get into in the podcast. Um, as a teenager, he flew to London from Toronto, bought a bicycle and cycled to Japan with no plan and no idea how he was going to get there. He has done a lot of work in theater, the work which he brings into his uh, radical wholeness uh, workshops. And without invoking any dogmas or spiritual platitudes, Philip draws upon science, everyday life and our own ability to experiment with our own consciousness to draw a map to reintegration. So we spoke about his work in general and then looked specifically at how it relates to cravings, bad habits, addictions, and other obstacles to a healthy lifestyle. And if you're interested, we uh, videoed the Skype call. So not only is it on audio, but if you go to plantyourself.com slash 326, you will be able to, to watch us. Um, to, you can watch us talk to each other um, on video. Before we jump in, the only quick announcement is that WellStart Health is starting a brand new cohort, a 12-week intensive improve your health, break your bad habits cohort. Um, it starts on Monday, June 17th. And this is another cohort where if you sign up for it, you get for free the Bluetooth um, connected blood pressure cuff and bathroom scale. So great deal. That's about $100 if you were to buy them on your own. And we throw that in to the 12 week intensive on ramp to health program. You can find out more at wellstarthealth.com. All right, so let's get to it. An exploration of radical wholeness. Without further ado, Philip Shepard, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. It's lovely to be here, Howard. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation so much. Um, I was introduced to your work probably three months ago. Someone told me to get radical wholeness, and it wasn't a suggestion. It was a, a command. And as soon as I started reading it, I, I understood why. And we met last month um, in Greensboro. I took your wonderful two-day workshop, and I am just buzzing with excitement to share this with my listeners and and as far as we can reach it out into the world. Um, let's start with maybe just a basic definition of of wholeness for us. <laughs> so so that we have we have a starting point. Yeah, the easy yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a valid starting point, because it, on the one hand, it seems so obvious wholeness is that which includes all that is. On the other hand, you know, we live in a culture that systematically diverts our gaze from wholeness and has actually defined wholeness in a way that means something else. So what I mean by that is we think of the wholeness of the self um, or the wholeness of, of the pen. We think of wholeness as 
something that has a boundary. Mm. When you're, you know, when you're encouraged to become whole in body, mind, and spirit, underlining that uh, that metaphor, that that aspiration, is this idea that there are three parts of the self, and and if you can allow each of them to flourish and to come into harmony with the others, you will be whole. So it's like it's like this idea that there's the wholeness exists within the case of my skin. And that's not what wholeness is. Wholeness has no boundary. There's not a place where wholeness starts and something else begins. And the nature of our reality is inescapably that of a whole. There's nothing in the cosmos that doesn't affect everything else within it. Everything leans on everything. Everything depends on everything. So so to think of wholeness in any way other than the living borderless whole mm. within which your life is held uh, is to imagine wholeness as something other than what it is. Yeah. And what really touched me deeply as I began reading your book is I've heard all this before, right? And I've read, you know, Larry Dossi's work and David Bohm and this idea, but and, and quantum entanglement and all that stuff. But it all felt very theoretical. Like, yeah, there's this universe out there and it's ineffable and in, unknowable. But day to day, I am a separate Hold on, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, you know, a boundaried individual, and this is how this is how things are. What you kind of showed me for sort of two things right off the bat. One is that this is very culturally determined, and that we are totally blind to how unwhole we are because of our culture, and that it has real and significant consequences for our lives and and for the life of the planet. And you make a really good case that pretty much everything that's going wrong that's on the planet is due to our inadequate appreciation of wholeness and our inability to to sense it. Yeah, that, you know, that inability to sense it is at the core of, of my book, Radical Wholeness. We have been systematically desensitized to feel wholeness. Now, if wholeness is the inescapable nature of our reality, that means we've been systematically desensitized to feel reality. So then what are we living in a fantasy? And I think I think we are. In fact, in fact, the fantasy has been framed for us. The nature of the fantasy to which our culture is attached is what Joseph Campbell um, used to describe the mythological tyrant. He describes the tyrant as the man of self-achieved independence. And that's, mm. such a, that's such a seductive phrase, self-achieved independence. I think that doubles <laughs> as the American dream. Yeah, that's, that's what we want. That's what, yeah, that sounds great. Let me add it. And, and you know, the, the images that come to mind are of the, you know, the penthouse suite lording it over the city or, or the mansion on the hill with the perimeter fence and the security around it. And, and we are goaded, we are trained to long for independence. But, but 
You can search the cosmos and not find one example anywhere of independence. It's a fantasy. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So then to come back to the reality and the ways in which, I mean, you, you just, one aspect of our culture, the education system. So our, our, our whole approach to life and kids and education would be so different if we took as the aim of education to help each child into its unique wholeness. But what we do instead is we take these young, tender kids and put them at desks and tell them to sit still and pay attention to the lesson and fill their heads with the right answers and the right facts. And meanwhile, the body's energy is not just suppressed, it's a liability. If that energy isn't controlled, you end up in the principal's office. And to suppress the body's energy in that way is identical to suppressing the body's intelligence. So we are, we are fostered into this sundering of our thinking from our being. And we end up believing, we believe that we can think more clearly with the segregated intelligence of the head than we can with the intelligence of the whole of our being. Right. And you use two beautiful metaphors from nature that immediately touched me in my own body. One is the, the whirlpool in a river, right? Where, yeah, it's a, it's a thing, but it's not a thing. It's a process. And, and then taking that to a tree and saying, like, where does the tree end? What are the, what are the whole boundaries of the tree? Of course, if you, you, know, you think about it for eight seconds, and there aren't any. If, if, you, if you imagine, it's, it's this thing that we, because we live in our heads, we, we fracture the world into, into independent things. That's how we're trained to see the world, and other cultures see it differently. But when, when, you know, to see the tree as a thing is to miss the reality of the tree because the tree is a process. The tree is changing in every moment of its life. There is sap running. There are cells changing. And, and as soon as you understand that the tree is a process, then the question you ask is, well, where, where's the boundary of that process? And you certainly the roots are part of the process and you realize well the moisture around the roots is part of the tree's process and and the sun is part of the tree's process and and the oceans beyond the mountains that bring rain to, are part of the tree and ultimately that the process of the tree you realize um extends to the limit of the cosmos right. there is no boundary and right. that's that's the wholeness of the tree every bit as much as it's the wholeness of each of us Right. And, and that can sort of stay in the realm of comfortable theology, right? Sun, Sunday morning thoughts, except that you smack us with research from Wall Street, right? <laughs> Which I know you brought up early in, in your uh, public talk in, in Greensboro. Can you describe what, what that research is and what it means to you? Absolutely. What, what we've discovered is that the body actually knows a million times more than the conscious mind. 
It processes a million times more bits of information than we can consciously be aware of. So this, you know, tyrannical, um, self-important, conscious thinker in the head, which believes it's in charge and is 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 rightly the governor of the self, is running on a millionth of the information that that courses through our being. So this the research you're talking about, John Coates, um, an interesting guy because he started as a high frequency trader on Wall Street, and then he left and became a neuroscientist. And then he came back to Wall Street to do some research because there was this phenomenon that he'd experienced whereby he would make a trade and just know it was a winner. He would just know it. And sure enough, it was. And he realized, well, that's a real phenomenon that's never been studied. And what's going on there? So he did he did two rounds of research. In the first round of research, he he got a group of traders and he had them sort of answer a, a questionnaire after a trade. How well did you do you believe this is? What do you think the risks are? That sort of thing. But he at the same time he was measuring the body's responses to the trade, including cortisol, which is a stress hormone. And then he looked at, you know, it doesn't take long to know in high-frequency trading whether a trade is a winner or not. So he looked at the results of the trade, and, and the conscious assessment had no correlation at all to whether the trade was a success or not. But the body, in every instance, knew. The body knew whether it was a dog or a winner. And so he said, well, that's interesting. Let's do another round. And he said, you know, if it's true that the body is so much more subtly aware, even in this highly abstract realm of Wall Street trading, then people who are more in touch with their bodies should do better at trading. So he got a group of Wall Street traders and outfitted them with a heart rate monitor that only he could read. And he would text them at intervals during the day and say, what's your heart rate? What's your heart rate? And they weren't allowed to palpate. They weren't allowed to feel their heart rate uh, with their fingers. They had to feel it in their body. And some guys had no idea. You know, it was obvious they were just guessing. And others were really, really close to being able to feel their heart rate. And then he, he took those results and looked at the previous year's trades and the traders who were more in touch with their heart rate did significantly better than those who weren't. But not only that, the older traders did significantly better as though the Wall Street environment were selecting for that, that ability to feel what the body knows. Hmm. Right. Um, which reminds me of, you know, jumping way to a different topic that you cover in the book, this the um, I, I love this so much. You talk about the phrase survival of the fittest. Right? And it's never occurred to me before, but you convinced me in like three seconds that it is a completely meaningless phrase that is simply tautological. Right. It's, it's could you talk, talk, talk a little bit about that, maybe in ter and, and in terms of this this phenomenon of the older, the self, the selected traders? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, sir, I mean, survival of the fittest. Um, 
you say, well, what's what does fitness mean? It, it, is it the biggest? Well, no, because there are many times where the smallest has survived. And the biggest of, is it the smartest? No, is it the and and what it comes down to is 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 survival of the fittest ultimately means whatever has survived is the fittest. So it's the survival of whatever survives. I mean, <laughs> that there's the tautology of it, right? That, that's, that's all the phrase means. And, and it's, it's erroneous in, its, in the assumptions that lie behind it because ultimately you look at evolution and what survives is what is most in harmony with its environment. So really mm. it's that the principle behind evolution is survival of the most harmonious. Um, and, and harmony mm. doesn't mean not killing. I mean, the, you know, you introduce wolves to Yellowstone Park and, and the beaver population thrives in this bizarre thing because the wolves hunt the deer and so the deer keep to the forest and so trees can now grow by the riverbank and beavers can come back. Um, but, but wolves are a necessary part of that harmony. And of course the, you know, you take it back to the wall street traders and they are, they are coming into the harmony of their being rather than, excluding what the body knows and running on on what the what the head is determined in isolation from the, what the body knows right and you know for me it's very easy to vilify wall street to vilify the financial system and yet it's only you know, it's, it's vilifiable when it is separated from this holistic knowing that if you think about you know wall street or the financial markets in in terms of their natural analogs of like the most efficient re redistribution of resources from where they are where they are overabundant to where they are needed you you can see how like any of our institutions can be saved in a way by being expanded into into this unboundaried wholeness yeah or they can be contracted from wholeness so so the 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 legal requirement of a corporation to act exclusively in the best interest of the shareholder uh, excludes the environment, excludes um, so many, so many other variables. Um, and, and, you know, until, until our laws uh, become grounded in a more holistic principle, um, damage will be done. Right. So there's, there's two sentences that um, I was getting ready to text to my friend who's a, a former hunter who became a vegan who still really embraces hunting culture. And the two sentences were, and I can't find it in the book right now, but I think I have them in memory, uh, wild predators um, um, kill... Um, I'm losing it, but wild predators um, kill in service. Um, we just take what we want sort of the yeah. you know the difference between the way we consume the world and and the way you know a wild predator you could say that these wall street traders are essentially predators they're they're you know they're trying to make the best deal for them themselves or their firm or their entity and yet in in the context of wholeness it that that kind of energy can serve the whole or it can degrade the whole yeah you think you think of uh 
of a pack of wolves with a, a herd of deer, they're not going after the buck. They're not going after the big leader. They're going after the sick. They're going after the weak. Um, when a hunter comes out, uh, the, the big buck is the one he wants. And that's the leader of, of the herd. That's what keeps the herd together in all its relationships. And, and similarly, as you say, with, with wall street, um, it's, it's, it, so, so there are these, there are these, there's this disjunction between how we understand and feel ourselves and how we understand and feel nature. And, and that disjunction shows up in, in the differences between what nature loves and how we react. So, so nature loves change. I mean, that tree is changing with every second. My body is changing with every second, the world around me. Nature loves diversity. It's not interested in making identical things. It, every creation is new. And, you know, that, that age-old conundrum, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Well, the egg came first because each egg is the combination of two chickens to further evolution and, and, and create a new step in that progression. So, so the, the diversity of nature is unstoppable. And finally, nature loves service. And there is not a creature born that is not born into service, whether it's the earthworm burrowing in the dank earth or the starling singing in the tree or the, the wolf in the forest. Every creature is born into service. You take those that understanding of what nature loves and you apply it to us as we live in our heads and live out of wholeness and change is an inconvenience. We don't like change because we've got our plans and, and, and we depend on those and diversity is a threat to us because we, we want to feel safe and we want to know what, what, you know, what the risks are and conformity is what we seek and diversity is an unknown and a threat to us. And service, we serve only ourselves, and we take that to be the obvious entitlement of being a human being. Right. Um, so, I want to. I kind of want to jump into like what I'm interested in. I feel like there's there's a few more layers I'd love to kind of lay down, just because I'm I'm trying to put myself in the in the in the headspace of someone who hasn't read your book and experienced. So um, love for you to talk about in the, in the first chapter is so beautiful. The uh, feel, feel at flesh inside, which we, we, you know, when I first start reading the book and I see the title of the chapter is feel, feel at flesh inside. I think like some editor must've fallen asleep, <laughs> but um, you, you talk about the five senses, which are obvious objective facts of reality that we have these five senses and all of a sudden you say no those are cultural artifacts and other cultures do it differently and those and the, and thinking that we have five senses makes us see the world in a certain way and makes us not see the world in in other ways maybe maybe kind of just to lay a lay a foundation for us about you know, all the, the, some of the ways in which our culture brainwashes us to miss reality. Yeah, when we are attached to the five senses, it sets up a certain model for how we experience the body. 
And that model in regard to the senses uh, tells us that, well, a stimulus comes from the outside world. It passes the boundary of the self and arrives on a receptor, whether that's light into the eye or or a scent into the nose or sound into the ear. And that receptor sends a signal to the brain to be interpreted. And, And you realize that all the senses have that model in common. And that's the reason that we don't accept balance as a sense. And there are cultures, uh, I speak in my book of the Anglo-Ebe culture, who, for whom balance is the primary sense. Well, we can't accept balance as a sense, even though we talk about having a sense of balance. There's a, a sense organ devoted to it. But balance doesn't uphold the boundary around the self that reinforces our sense of being independent from the world. We are born into the gravitational field of the earth, and it feels us as clearly as we feel it. We're held in a mutual relationship that, that, that defies any boundary. And so balance is, isn't about, isn't about a, a stimulus crossing the border of the self and landing on a receptor. It is this felt relationship. And so we disallow it as a sense. And, and if I go back again to the Anglo-Ewe culture, Sesalalame, which is translates as feel, feel at flesh inside, is their primary way of experiencing the senses. So they feel the world within the spaciousness of the body. They feel the sights of the world in the body. They feel the, the sounds of the world in the body. And, you know, they have a word that means to listen with the ear. But, but for them, that's not, that's not real listening. Listening is when you feel the world in the body. So they have a porosity that enables them to um, um, surrender in a, in, a, in a positive sense of the world to what is here now, to this living present that they are part of. And as long as we contract into our five senses, we will sit in the head and interpret the world for ourselves and feel estranged from it and separate from it and hungry to connect with the present, to connect with our lives. But we are baffled in those attempts by the very separation within our being. All right. But we, we, I mean, we are our heads, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, good point, Howard. Okay. Right. <laughs> let's, let's look at that. I know, I know, I know, because you, you think, well, the, you know, the brain is in the head. It's where we think it's, it's a, and the body's a vehicle. That's, you know, that is such an old metaphor. You find a, a reference to that in a dialogue uh, of Plato's, Timaeus, where he talks about the head as the divine sphere and the body as a vehicle. So it's an, it's an old, old sense. And, you know, as I said, the body is suffused with intelligence. I, here's how I think of the body. I experience the body as a resonator. And I feel my body resonating to the world, to the currents of the present in a way I could never, ever consciously delineate. But I feel it. And in that resonance, that is what the Wall Street traders feel. 
that is what guides the you know the the wolf in the in the forest there is so much information in the body and on a physiological level every cell participates in our thinking something that candace pert uh really clarified with um with molecules of emotion that uh, uh, her book um every living cell participates in our thinking and then there's this little fact of a brain in the belly that is sort of beginning to leak into our popular understanding that there is a a brain in the belly that is not a subsection of the brain in the head and we refer to it as the second brain and in fact it's our first brain in an evolutionary sense it is the primary brain of our being mm -hmm. and we're starting to, to see this you know in my in my community that looks at healthy eating in terms of the microbiome and sort of relationship with with mood um and you know i think 90 percent of the serotonin in the body is produced in the gut um, but we still like so before I came to your work, I was very much advocating body awareness and by body awareness, <laughs> you know where I'm going. I mean that now my my head, which is, of course, where where I live, is aware of my body. So I'm going to do a meditation. I'm going to do a visualization or I'm going to do a some some sort of um, practice where I'm going to I am going to become aware of my breathing, or I am going to become aware of my pelvic bowl, of my gut, of my legs. And it's, you know, it's a lot better than not being aware. But it's it's ultimately, I realize I'm still reinforcing the model that created the separation in the first place. Yeah. And, and, you know, it sounds, it sounds so lovely to to go into a space and listen to the body and and we're told that that you know listening to the body is embodiment and and just as you say that phrase listen to the body more deeply entrenches the divide between our thinking and our being because it's saying in effect you know there's a wall between you and the body and the best you can do is to put your ear to that wall once in a while to find out what's happening on the other side of it. And that's that's the, that's the opposite of embodiment. So embodiment for me, um, embodiment is is what happens when the whole of my my awareness is congruent and attuned to the present. And that cannot happen when I'm in the head. So it's literally um, the sensation that the center of my awareness drops down through the body and comes to rest in the pelvic bowl. And lest that sound like a fantasy to the listeners, it is simply retracing the evolutionary path of our consciousness that began in the early Neolithic era, when we began to control the world around us with agriculture and domesticating animals and building permanent settlements. And when, when, that, when that began, the center of our awareness began to rise again from the pelvic bowl up through the body. And you can trace that etymologically through the 
the the history of language. Um, Homer, and I don't know why people don't don't make. I mean, Homer is studied, but he uses a word "freen," p h r e n, over and over, and 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 it's more often in the plural. But "freen" means in English mind, and it also means diaphragm, because Mm -hmm. that in that Hellenic culture. Our center was poised in balance between what I experience as the male pole of my consciousness in the head and the female pole of my consciousness in the pelvic bowl. And and I love that at that point of balance, we birthed theater as we know it and philosophy as we know it and science as we know it. It's 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 like the the this this sudden uh, flowering. Um, that was made possible. And then, you know, beyond that, we migrated up into the head. So that dropping of our center of awareness is is historically our birthright in that way. And it's also how many other cultures in the world experience their thinking. Right. Well, I think, I think it's, you know, the, re- the reason we miss that in in Homer is you know es- essentially your story is uh, a flat is flatland, right? Where there's there's this two dimensional world that we're all in. You had a set of experiences um, when you were when you were a young person that uh, that jettisoned you up in the air to be able to see the three to see the three dimensionality to see uh, to see the culture as an outsider. You know, I mean, I'm just I'm constantly being flabbergasted by linguistically how trapped we are, where, you know, you talk about, you know, the difference between head count, how many people are here and body count, how many people are dead. Um, you know, the head of a corporation, the, the head and the body. Um, I, I, one, one of the exercises that you teach the elevator, I was suddenly realizing like that word is it means going up. And right to elevate, and of course, what you're you're trying to teach us is how to how to bring our consciousness down. Like it's it's inescapable. Um, but um, there's a can I can I yeah. throw a quote at you? Yeah, there's yeah. A, there's a pre-Socratic philosopher Antisthenes um, who who made this profound resonant statement that really is pertinent at the moment. He said. The most useful act of learning in our lives is to unlearn what is untrue. Mm. I just uh, that's been my life. That's been my life. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, so I don't think we, we talked about this, but I, I'm a, a contributing author to a book called Whole, W-H-O-L-E. Um, it's about the science of nutrition. And it was, I, I wrote my my main author, T. Colin Campbell, um, had t- studied and taught reductionist nutrition, which is the way he learned it in terms of nutrients and Krebs cycle. And the farther he got into it, the more he realized, you know, the, the Krebs chart that we learn in, in high school biology became so complex as we got deeper and deeper into the individual that ultimately nutrition was unknowable. And instead, we want to look at, you know, whole foods and whole systems. And one of the points he makes is that we don't do science anymore. We do technology. And so when you talk about, you know, the science being birthed in the Hellenic period where where the uh, the diaphragm was the center, the the chest was the center of being right. what, What was there was were questions. 
And what we have, what we have now, as it looks like science, is you know the questions are, how do we monetize this, as as opposed to what is truth. Well, that's a little sobering, <laughs> and that and that that thing about questions, um, I think, I think part of the reason things are so out of balance in our world is that is that again our education system is devoted to answers and if you get the right answers you'll do well and it it does nothing to help kids formulate questions to test to challenge and so you end up with politicians making statements and someone says well that feels right to me and they glom onto that as the answer without without the skill to hold it to account and and i'm i'm so much more interested in questions than answers i it's one of the gifts for me of teaching the workshop because people bring questions in that i would never have formulated and my limitation in thinking is not a limit um in the way i can come up with answers my limitation is my limited ability to formulate questions Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of a line. I think it's from Goethe. Says nature grows mute under torture, uh-huh. and that that you know, if you <laughs> think if you think about the way science and inquiry is taught, it's almost it's almost like those TV shows where they you know we're trying to stop the terrorist bomb, and we're just gonna we're gonna torture. You know, when you look at animal testing, when you look at you know atomic research, every, everything is about applying will and power and force until something, you know, cra- cracks under the pressure as as a, as opposed to sort of, you know, a, a holistic view of, of finding out about the world, which is to be in it and be in be in relation. And, and one of the biggest differences there is, is our whole agenda is devoted to learning about nature. And we have forgotten how to learn from nature. And nature is our most intimate, wisest teacher. And we we don't, you know, to lose the body's resonance is at the same time to lose the ability to be informed um, by nature, to learn from it. And we just, all we know is how to shatter it and itemize its bits. Mm. So I think this, this is for me is a beautiful segue into the work that I do, which is try to help people be healthier. And this largely revolves around diet, exercise, sleep, stress, and kind of what one of the points that I make in my teaching is that what we want to try to do is get back to natural things that there is, even if we can't prove it with double blind studies, that it just makes sense that if you're eating what you could have naturally attained, on foot without refrigeration and fossil fuels and hierarchies of society. If you and if you moved during the day as if you would have had to move to collect and process that food stuff, um, that there's you know there's this idea that that nature can guide us and we don't have to be so um, intellectual about reading all the diet books and and figuring out our macronutrients 
Um, and yet people, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard for people to let go of control, even though paradoxically that control has totally left their lives out of control. Yeah. I mean, here's the, here's the, the conundrum we face is that when we deaden ourselves to wholeness, when we desensitize ourselves, which, which, which happens physically in the body, in the way we hold it, in the way we harbor tensions within it, in the way we compartmentalize its different energies. So as, as long as we are um, desensitized in that way to wholeness, it is impossible to feel its guidance. It, I mean, it is guiding us. It, the, the guidance is there, as, as it was for the Wall Street traders in every moment. But but it's like the if the body is a resonator, it's like we've stuffed it full of cotton balls, and it just it has lost its resonance. When you when you no longer are able to feel the guidance of the present, all you can do is guide yourself. You have to. And so you take charge and you make those decisions and you live in the head and, and machinate over, over what you should do and how you should do it and when you should do it and, and all that stuff that, that we're so familiar with. And so to me, the, the journey into feeling, as you say, the guidance of nature um, necessitates a return to the body and, and it requires the inner work of of discovering how we've mechanized the breath and shut it out of much of the body how we've how we've divided ourselves and we find those shadows and those cotton balls and we integrate them and then there is a spaciousness within our beings that can rest in the guidance of every moment mm. so i want to challenge that a little bit from from my perspective, in that so you know, there's this, there's a movement in the nutrition world called intuitive eating, right, which I deeply appreciate where it's coming from. And at the same time, I think it leads people astray. Because so like, like what my body intuitively feels like it wants is chocolate. <laughs> Right. And people who are addicted to cigarettes, they're, they intuitively want to smoke. And if they don't smoke, they feel worse. So can can the intelligence of an embodied being survive a toxic environment? I think you have one one line in the book that like, I think you're quoting someone saying that the, the smallest unit of health is the community. Yeah. Um, so can, um, at some point, don't we have to override the body's natural inclinations because we know the the toxins that are out there trying to get us i i i love the challenge so so if you are talking to a group of people who've been raised in this culture and live in a divided state and live in their heads and know how to notice the body um you are you are telling people who have suppressed the body's intelligence um, to trust that that shattered entity. And if you're going to tell somebody to eat intuitively, you need, you know, a year or two of work to to allow them to come back 
to their being, to allow them to feel the breath in their legs, to allow them to, to feel the energy of the body rather than its, its materiality. You have, to, you have to restore the spaciousness to the resonator. Mm. And if you don't, then intuition is, is, a, is a faulty device because it's impaired. So here's my, here's my contention, is that the addictiveness of our culture is a direct consequence of us having separated from our being. So, so that intelligence in the pelvic bowl that we spoke of is the ground of your being. And unlike the intelligence in the head, which excels at analysis and systemizing and perspective and, and, and yearns to know everything around it objectively, that intelligence in the pelvic bowl attunes to wholeness and integrates and feels the world around it. So it comes into felt relationship rather than known relationship. Now, if you divorce yourself from your being, you leave behind a hole. It's like a black hole within you that yearns to be filled. And then we reach for chocolate and cigarettes and alcohol and gambling and our digital devices and our distractions to try to fill the emptiness we feel within us. So the work, the work that takes us away from addiction to me, begins with a resensitizing of our bodies, of our being, so that if you can land on the pelvic floor and come to rest there, in my experience, intuitive eating will, will be just fine. And intuitive eating, you know, in that sense that I'm talking about it, isn't divorced from the understanding that our meat is filled with antibiotics and uh, and, and our you know there are vegetables that are that, that are laced with chemicals it, all of that information though can be integrated so that it informs us it resensitizes us mm-hmm. and then when that happens i trust the body's intelligence gotcha. so the wall street traders weren't um, doing tarot, they were actually looking at financial data. Right? So, so, yes. so it's not and it's, if it's, I, go ahead. I, and if I walked into Wall Street, and I communed with my body and tried to pick a winner, um, it wouldn't happen because because I haven't been sensitized to that milieu by the integration of, of all that information. Mm. So this this comes to um, one of the, the most profound um, definitions that you uh, you gift us with, which is the def- your definition of intelligence, and and you you start out by saying like, okay, so human beings are clear. we're clearly you know incredibly intelligent, and our intelligence can be measured on IQ tests as abstract thinking, and if if intelligence means we 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 like live well and we don't screw up our Earth, then maybe we're not so intelligent after all. <laughs> Um, you say, you know, you say it much, much more poetically, but um, you have a different definition of intelligence that I find incredibly empowering. Can you talk uh, talk about that? Because I think it relates to the ability to navigate a toxic world. Yeah, um, 
I, you know, it's not that I dispute abstract reasoning as a part of our intelligence, but to me, it's a narrow wavelength on a huge spectrum. And that spectrum, I would first of all call sensitivity. And I really believe sensitivity is the foundation of our intelligence. And it, it, I don't care what sensitivity it is. It, it can be a sensitivity to the sound of rain on the roof, to a child playing with paint, to Mozart, to legal argument, to Wall Street trading, any, any sensitivity. And by sense, by sense, by sensitivity, what do you mean? Like the ability to discern nuance, or what? What is sensitivity? Because I think we, you know, because we think of it as as mostly a bad thing. Sensitivity, yeah, I know, and that's part of our demeaning of the female, right? And and there are people who are called too sensitive. Mm. Sensitivity is is just the um, the ability to attune to information that is coming through you. So the retina um, is sensitive to light. Now, the nature of sensitivity is that it's reactive. If the retina didn't react, we wouldn't see. That reactivity has to be grounded in order to become coherent. Now, we live in a culture that, that uh, tacitly prohibits us from being grounded. It, it tells us over and over in a million ways, up is good and down is bad. Um, so, that, so that in terms of intelligence, I don't think there's such a thing as too sensitive. I think what there is is sensitivities that haven't become grounded. And when it's not grounded, the information they're accessing can't be made coherent. So my, if I were to name... Um, uh, intelligence and and characterize it, I would characterize it as grounded sensitivity. And we're very, very, very clever um, in our modern world, but we've forgotten how to live intelligently. And that that forgetfulness on our part is a is an is a lack of groundedness and and the fact that we've been so systematically desensitized. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking out my, my window here and at, at my uh, Blackberry patch. And so I'm thinking about like intelligence for me in terms of like, you know, does it grow food? And I'm, I'm mostly colorblind. So I have a real I have a hard time picking the ripe berries. Like I'll bring in berries as a gift for my for my family, and you know they'll eat a few and then leave the rest. Um, but I've, I'm very sensitive in um, when I put a broad fork in the ground to know whether the soil is aerated enough. Yeah. And, and those aren't you know like I read a book about it, right? I read like here's a broad fork, here's a, but until I did it and felt in my body and got and then got feedback. Like, so that is, that's kind of what you mean by a grounded sensitivity. Like, I'm smart enough to grow food now, and I wasn't having just read the books. Yes, exactly right. So we, you know, we have forgotten as a culture what integration means, just as we've forgotten what wholeness is. So we think integration happens as we gather and paste together all these bits of information. And and that's that's not that's not wholeness. Um, that's patchwork. Um, 
And it's not analog, it's digital. And, and what happens as you take a bit of information and you can literally drop it through the body and allow it to come to rest on the pelvic floor and it will be reborn as a sensitivity. Or you can take the information about ground needs to be aerated and all the rest of it, and and the body then feels that fork going into the earth and feels feels the difference between when it's aerated and when it's not, and the the body recognizes it. It's so it's not you know there's a danger in my work because my my work is so concerned with counterbalancing the 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 dire polarities of our culture so there's a there's a possible misperception that i'm i'm about you know going backwards to the pelvic bowl going back and no i you know i think we are at the brink i hope of a of a new shift in consciousness and i think that shift will happen in the body and it will bring the brilliant analytical part of our intelligence in the head into union with that deep grounded felt intelligence in the pelvic bowl so that we experience our our consciousness as not a a localized intelligence but as a as an axis that runs through the body from the pelvic floor to the head and like a bar magnet it holds a field around it that attunes us to the world. Mm. All right. And and I love, you know, that you do point out that like the world is in a pretty dire position and our each of us, our power lies in our own shift, our own integration and move to wholeness as, as really the only the only leverage we have that's not going to perpetuate the problem. And so and so I'm, I'm seeing my work in that context now, which feels much more beautiful and pleasant and holy. And I'm still, you know, I'm still finding I'm taking people from this current paradigm. And the first thing I do is not get them to feel their pelvic bowl, because, you know, I've only been doing this work for a month, but get them to stop eating crap, right, which is still sort of, it feels top down. But but um, a friend and teacher of mine, Glenn Livingston talks about like, you don't start doing um, forensics until you put out the fire. Right. So so what I'm what I'm working on is now getting people to, you know, like when, when I get people to impose their will on their eating for a while and they stop stuffing their face with junk food, then they can start to feel the the gap that has been caused by their separation from their own from their own embodied being. And so to so in a certain sense, I'm using the, the tools of separation. And so so that's what I, that's what I'm playing with. Like, I don't want to reinforce it at the same time as, you know, I have to I have to sort of transition people um, into is this making any sense like. The, yeah, and I can I can I can recontextualize it a little because it's it's akin to what I do in the workshop there. You know, when we are. Um, coursing through a familiar neural pattern. We need conscious awareness to disrupt it. 
And so I will, you know, in the workshop, I will direct people to bring their awareness to the pelvic floor, to feel the pelvic floor release to the breath. And, and they're doing it deliberately. I'm not saying, oh, just feel your body and let it breathe how it wants to, mm. because that'll, that'll slot them back into the neural pattern. But, but the, the, the conscious effort, um, like willpower, eventually exhausts itself. So, so that deliberate paying attention has as its goal a new sensitivity, mm. not, a, not, a, not a, a, a domination of the self, but a new sensitivity, a new neural pathway, and then that will carry us. So, so it's an interim phase, it's a necessary interim phase to bring conscious awareness to, look, that's junk, don't put it in your body. In the same way that I say, um, look, you're, you're driving your breath from your sternum, let's find another way to do it. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's an activation of our learning, it's a disruption of a pattern that requ requires conscious effort. God, but, God. But, to, but to say, but to say <clears throat> this, to say this is the, you know, to say the willpower is how you need to live um, is to ultimately defeat yourself because you're in self-conflict. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's one of the things I was I was thinking about, because one of the constructs that I use to help people um, is something I borrowed from uh, from my friend Glenn Livingston, who wrote a book called Never Binge Again, which is based on rational recovery by Jack Trimpey, which says <laughs> we, we there's like the part of us that wants to eat junk food is a survival drive, right? So that we're, we're, we're inherently programmed to get our, get our calorically caloric needs met in an environment of, of food uncertainty. So wherever there's high density, high calorie density food, we're going to go for it. And we happen to live in a world now in which it's available 24 seven, cheap, convenient, socially acceptable, addictive, um, highly marketed. And so we want to take that in that internal voice and separate from it. So we don't think that that's our higher self. And I found it to be very effective with people you know, to give it a name. Some people call it the pig or the food demon or the parasite that just that just wants and to separate from it. But at the same time, I in reading your work, thinking that's that's sort of fostering and, and reifying this internal conflict. Yeah, I, I mean, I would, again, I would recontextualize that. I, I, I don't have an issue with survival drive, but I think there's a, there's a deeper root to it, which is the disconnection from your being. When you disconnect from your being, you feel insecure. Your survival is uncertain. Mm. And you're trying to fill that that void of uncertainty with food. So again, it's 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 that disconnection from being um, that is the that is the root of it, it as I see it. You, like I I don't feel a survival drive to cram myself with junk food. I just don't because I come back to the security of my being and I feel in harmony with the world in a in a in a way that that makes that um, distasteful and unnecessary. Um, and it doesn't mean I won't pick up a piece of chocolate and eat it. 
but I eat one piece of chocolate. I don't eat three chocolate bars. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that I, so I don't outlaw the experience, but it's it's moderated in relationship with the whole. So what gets us into trouble is those parts of us that are unintegrated. Any part of us that is unintegrated will remain reactive. So to to name that survival drive, the pig or the 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 saboteur or whatever is to already sort of close the door on integration. Um, that reactive energy will continue to live until it's been integrated. And we, you know, then that, that job, um, in a way of surrendering to wholeness, is, is precisely the journey of recognizing what within us is unintegrated and understanding it as an orphaned energy that is at odds. It's been separated from the energy of our being in the same way that, that uh, a single starling can be separated from the flock of starlings that, that swims through the sky as, a, as this almost organism. And, and to bring that energy, that orphaned energy, into contact with your being it will harmonize it in the same way that the movement of a lone starling brought into the flock of starlings will be harmonized and also the the eyes and ears of that starling now join that flock and add a a, a new sensitivity to it so so the integration of an energy bringing it back into your being will newly sensitize you to the world and will and and will disarm the reactivity that makes you reach for what ultimately um is harmful to you hmm. so you you um you talk about self mastery right which is <laughs> which is sort of the the model that i have implicitly been using and you you point out that the you know linguistically having a master makes you a slave and so that self mastery really is about an enslaved self that you're constantly trying to manage your actions your behaviors your impulses and you know cuz like the parent you know the, the the two poles seem to be either i manage them or i'm out of control but the two, the two have something in common, they're, that they're both on the pole of I don't trust myself. Yeah. Right. And you see, you're, you're saying that, that, that learning how to experience the world through your body, as opposed to just through your head, produces trust in a way that someone who hasn't experienced it simply can't fathom. Yeah, the, so the agenda of our culture, the underlying imperative of our culture is to take charge of and master and organize it. And we organize our bodies and we organize our eating habits and we organize our schedules and we organize our relationships and we organize our careers and we organize bloody everything. And we, we are in the same way that we've been desensitized to wholeness we're not even aware of the possibility of surrendering to wholeness in such a way that we feel ourselves being organized by the present. 
So there is a harmony to the present that is is a, is attuned by everything that exists. And there is guidance in that harmony, but we're so locked into the boundary of the self and the agenda of, of organizing it um, that we become forgetful that it's there. And to recover bit by bit, to recover that spaciousness within the body that brings you back to the core of your being is to be able to risk uh, and attune to that that infinitely subtle, infinitely informed harmony that will guide your every step. But it's it's a very it's 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 how we have survived as hunter gatherer cultures is to allow ourselves to be organized by the present, by the whole. Um, that knows, I mean, all the, all the attributes we assign to our objectified God also belong to the present. The present is omniscient. Everything that is happening in the universe is affecting every other molecule within it. It's this phenomenally attuned whole, and the present is omnipotent. It, it births everything that comes into existence. And and of course the present is omnipresent, but 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 there but just 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 you know I'd love for your listeners to entertain the possibility that you can give up the frantic um, race of trying to organize yourself and keep it all together and recover that embodied sensitivity that enables you to be organized by the present. Right. So there's a few things that you wrote that I think are very relevant to this to this issue of people just, you know, becoming healthier, better in themselves through their habits. What one is that you said uh, self-improvement tends to pull us into self tyranny. Now, you used the word tyrant earlier, quoting Joseph Campbell as, you know, the self achieved um, in independence. independence. And you know, in independence, you point out means we're we're disconnected. We're on the hill. We're we're overlooking, overseeing, supervising, and separate from separate from. And he says that that actually. And then you write disconnection from the present means disconnection from enough, and that basically all of our addictions are trying to. You know, I can't remember who said it, but like you know, trying to find a vitamin in, in a bag of M and M's. You, you you have to eat an infinite number of M&Ms before you're going to find something nourishing in it. And that's kind of what we're doing because we're we're cut off from the true source of what feeds us. We're going to try to eat anything and we and because it doesn't nourish us. We have we, we have no choice but to keep eating. Yeah, absolutely. And and, you know, you look at that concept of enough I, I, as long as you've disconnected from your being and your your being is your only single true security in life it's it's all you've got and it's more than you could ever need to come back to the security of your being but you disconnect from that and there is scarcity and i mean that it's just the state of your being is scarcity of being and 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 you want 
you want to compensate for that. And as long as you feel that scarcity in the body, there will never be enough. And our, our, our culture has obliterated the concept of enough. I mean, what's enough money? What are you, you know, is it three billion? No, no, no. You, you, because somebody who has three billion dollars still needs more and still needs more. And what's enough information? Like, well, there's not enough information. I need, I need to go online. There's, there's all this stuff I need to, I need to, and, and, and you know what, what's enough of anything? We don't, we, we've lost that sense. And so that, you know, that's what's enough food, what's enough rest, what's enough anything, um, what's enough doing it. So to come back within that scarcity of being, we have substituted order for harmony we want to order and organize and order is the opposite of harmony order is top down its idea being imposed on a system to to make it a certain way harmony is is a property within an organic whole in which every part of that whole yields without resistance to every other part and then the whole comes into harmony and that with the boundary around the self that's what we prohibit ourselves from experiencing and mm. and all of that craving that restlessness that characterizes our culture can come to rest in the harmony of the larger being when we come back to rest in the harmony of our personal being. Right. One of the most profound points you make is that our society is essentially a reflection of each of our relationships with our own bodies. And so the work of me getting healthy, losing 30 pounds, getting off my meds can feel selfish, self-centered, trivial in the way, you know, what I really should be doing is marching, signing petitions, running for office. And yet you point out that the way, you know, the head, the male head dominates and silences the female pelvic bowl is has to be reflected in the way our society, male dominated achievement and independence um, silences and and sub subjectifies the female principles of of felt relationship and and harmony. That really the, the the work we're doing on ourselves could not be more global or political. Absolutely, and I mean what we've locked into as a culture is a a, a mistrust of anything that is not top down. So it's like the head should be in charge and and it dominates the body and that top-down relationship is at one and the same time a domination of the male part of us over the female part of us, as you said. And all that is reflected in our culture. Every organization in our culture has a leader. And in every organization, that leader is called the head of the organization. And that, that's what we're locked into. And, and we take charge of our lives from the head, and we manage our personal relationships from the head, and we have a top-down relationship with nature, which is absurd because, because our very breath depends on nature. It, it, uh, 
to presume um, that we can dominate nature is is just tragically short-sighted. Right. And a, a beautiful paradox or irony is that what what the tyrant wants more than anything is sort of freedom and security, right? And when you look at our culture, you know, like, you know, entrepreneurs talk about freedom, like what my, my lifestyle wants to give me freedom, which means freedom from having to do unpleasant things. And <laughs> you pointed that the, that the richer we get individually and as a society, we don't actually become more independent, we become more infantilized. Right? You say, say a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, you know, as you as you grow into adulthood, and, and you have kids of your own, you, you move into service, but, but, but it seems in our culture with this fantasy of independence, suddenly you're you don't you don't do your own laundry. You have people to do it for you. You don't cook your own meals. You have people to do it for you. It's like you're you're an infant sucking on the teat of the world, and everyone does everything for you. So you never have to feel inconvenienced. And the 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 drive behind behind that is 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 the search for security. The tyrant is obsessed with security because the tyrant understands that that freedom is found in security and 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 what the tyrant wants is to be safe ultimately that's why the you know the mythological castle with its battlements and ramparts to 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 ensure safety well well what the tyrant fails to understand is that life isn't safe. It just isn't. Mm. You get sick, you know, you get injured, you get hurt, you die. Everyone who's lived um, has died to the, to the best of our knowledge. It's, it's, life isn't a safe enterprise. <laughs> and, so, and, and so, you know, the tyrant is, is reacts to that with fear and, and retracts back into uh, trying to manufacture safety. In the meantime, even though there's no real safety, there is such a thing as real security. And that real security is found in the body, in the core of your being that you can come back to. So, so where the, where the, the tyrant um, seeks um, freedom and security, the hero seeks security in freedom. It's the freedom of surrender, the freedom of letting go, the freedom of, of plummeting down to the ground of your being that brings you back to security. Mm. So I want to um, I want to talk forever, but I, but <laughs> but there's other things in the world. Um, I want to I end with something that I just I just loved that when you're talking about like the way we can be, um, fulfill our addictions, the way we can eat irresponsibly and smoke things and take in Facebook and Instagram and, and all this is actually a sense of entitlement. And you uh, contrast entitlement with gratitude so that the, the two can't exist at the same time in in the same consciousness. What, what do you mean by that? Well, if you're entitled to something, there's no need to feel gratitude towards it. 
it's your entitlement. It's your right. Um, what what place does gratitude have in that? Hmm. Um, if 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 you receive something without a sense of entitlement, and you feel the gift of it in this moment, um, you know, and I, you know, even to receive the gift of breath from trees as as the as the exhalations of forests move into your body and become you through the whirlpool of the self and then release out and you realize the nature of that gift and you're not entitled to it. It's, it's a gift that <laughs> you feel in this moment. And then how could you not feel gratitude for it? Hmm. Nice. Um, cause, cause for me, like that changes just having that sense of gratitude changes my relationships with things that otherwise I might overconsume. Like on, on my run this morning, I realized that I don't, maybe it's not a coincidence that the things I read on Facebook is called my a feed. Oh, good. Well, that's lovely. Yeah. Right. right? Like, like, oh, what, what, you know, who else gets feed, you know, cattle, right? Yeah. Animals that are like just that are designed to consume until they're slaughtered. And yet, <laughs> like there's things I read on Facebook that just touch me deeply. Yeah. And the difference isn't the platform or the advertising. It's my relationship to it. And since Facebook, you know, it's kind of a pity that Facebook is free, right? Like if I paid 100 bucks a year for it, um, I might value it more. But just but bringing gratitude even to my food choices makes me think twice about just, you know, I'm just going to eat, 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 eat because I'm entitled. Like, I can't, if I'm not entitled to it, I can't satisfy my every impulse and craving. Yeah. And there's another, there's another quality that I'd love to just mention, which is the quality of spaciousness that in gratitude, um, you know, as you feel gratitude, there is a spaciousness to your being. And you feel that. And, and, I think the more spaciousness there is in your body, like the, the spaciousness in a bell that allows it to ring, the more um, ease and spaciousness there is in your sense of the world around you. And what happens, we are so committed to doing, we've dissociated doing from being so that we commit to doing and doing contracts us and that feed that Facebook feed, that's so lovely, Howard, how you uh, associate that with the cattle. Um, you can feel as you're sitting at the computer that the contraction of your being, like your awareness contracts onto that screen and this thing. And then, you know, you may hit a story that touches your heart. And again, you feel that dilation and that spaciousness. And it's it's a quality that our culture doesn't bring our attention to because we trust we trust um being stuffed you know we want our head to be full of ideas we want our heart to be full we want we don't trust emptiness but there is in the quality of emptiness or spaciousness the ability to be filled like a a valley is ready to be filled by a river running through it mm. beautiful well so, and I mean, one, one last thing, like 
the, there, those are words like the body spaciousness. How do people begin to move beyond? Okay, those are nice words, and I don't. I can sort of picture intellectually what that might be, but I don't know what he's talking about. How do people start to move? And maybe this is an invitation for you to talk about your your work, your books, your workshops, your website, um, or maybe you know some some words of initial pointing where people can begin to experience what you're talking about rather than just taking it in from the head. Yeah, I mean, the, the great challenge and reward of my work is that every exercise or practice I've developed is is a means of disclosing a pattern that our culture has imposed on our neurology. And it's a pattern that diminishes our experience of being and our ability to live fully in the present. So, so not to underestimate the challenge mm. of recovering spaciousness because all the cultural messaging in which we are immersed is, is urging us in the other direction. Um, I, you know, in the workshop, I, I, I guide people as effectively as I can over, over two days into recovering choice for themselves. If you're not aware of a pattern, if you're not aware that your breathing is top down, it just, well, that's how I breathe. That's normal. How can you even begin to question that pattern? So to find the release of the pelvic floor that enables a bottom-up breath, the experience of a bottom-up breath. And all of it, all of it, everything I propose is based first in experience. So where to point them? I, I, you know, I, there are, there's a set of eight exercises, audio exercises on my website. Um, I think they're $22 um, to download. But, but, each one of them is 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 a journey that facilitates that surrender to being, that surrender to wholeness. And I'd I'd love for people to experience them. And in fact, you, there's one you can you can get for free just to see what it's like um, um, on my website. You just sign up for the newsletter, you get it for free. And if you don't like the newsletter, which comes out like once every three months or something, you know, it's unsubscribed. Okay. And uh, what's what's the website? Website is philipshepherd.com. And Philip is with one L, not two. And Shepherd is S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D. Just mm. like the guy who looks after sheep. <laughs> philipshepherd.com. There's an irony for you as well. Right. <laughs> Great. And I'll, I'll include links to that, to, um, to the website and to your books uh, in the show notes uh, for, for today's episode. Tell, and mention your books as well so people can, can find them and start to dive in. I'd love that. Yeah, my first book is called New Self, New World. Um, my second book is called Radical Wholeness. And for people new to my work, I suggest they start with the second book rather than the first it's it's an easier more leisurely read and if they really want to go deep get the first book because it's it's a finer grained um sort of examination of of 
our culture and where we've come from and where we're at and and how to move forward from there. Beautiful. Well, Philip, thank you so much. First of all, thank you personally for your guidance on my own journey, uh, not to wholeness, but to being in relationship with wholeness. Right. As you've as you've as you've taught me. Um, thank you for the, the sensitivity that you bring to language and to the, the ways you point out, um, you know, pathways to freedom. Um, it's 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 an honor to to be sharing your insights with uh, with my friends and family and students. And uh, um, hopefully it's, will... a, it's a it's a particular pleasure talking through mm -hmm. these things with you because you, you know, you know, my work and you're you're such a capable bridge to the listeners of to to draw out from it ways in which they can understand it. And I so appreciate oh. all oh. that you bring to the conversation. Oh, well, well, I hope so, because I am this, this feels extremely important to the world. Like, you know, if I if I were, um, you know, dictator of the world, uh, for, I, I would put psychedelics in the water supply and I would have everybody read your work. <laughs> I think that's a great combination. <laughs> <laughs> that that'd be the my first two edicts, <laughs> but 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 since the world works uh, bottom up, not top down, we have to do it this way. Yeah, exactly. So pleasure to be pleasure to be collaborating with you on that. Really great, is. great. And you do just a quick word about your workshops because they're you know they're all over. I um, I discovered serendipitously like. Two weeks after I found your book that you were doing a workshop less than an hour for me. Um, tell, tell us a little, you know, for folks who who might be interested in, in experience this, in experiencing this in their body, a little bit about your workshops and where they can find out more. Yeah, all my workshops are listed on my website. I mean, there 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 are workshops that aren't there yet because they're still being finalized, but but. Um, um, through this year and into 2020. I'd also like to just briefly mention my facilitators trainings mm. because um, um, I, it's, a, it's a passion for me to share this work as deeply as I can with people. So I have, I have year-long facilitators trainings where we get together for three five-day periods at a retreat over a year and meet up once a week just to do an exercise and and uh, share a discussion. And in that year, there is such deep transformation. Um, it's just, it's a joy. Um, so, so all of that information is available on my website. I'd, I'd, I'd love, I'd love to hear if you'd be willing your experience of the workshop, because you came into it not really knowing what to expect. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my experience of the workshop, it was it was very gentle. So one of the things that I, I look for and I'm scared of in, in, in sort of transformational workshops is sort of a, you know, a, a heroic, like, like tenderization, like you're going to like, you know, hit me with a mallet until I come out, you know, the way you want me at the other end. Um, which I think, you know, it, it has it has a uh, there's a legacy in uh, sort of new age self-help of doing that. So I really appreciated that this was this was very gentle. It was also 
especially day one was some of the most challenging work I've ever done, especially around um, the, the exercises around breathing and talking. Right, which which it's it's hard to describe, but but essentially realizing a, the cultural pattern of um, when I start talking, my breathing changes in ways that it doesn't have to. And that, and then sort of recognizing that and, you know, you, you know, we, we haven't talked at all about you and your story and, you know, your your journey to Japan at the age of 18 and your your career as as a stage actor. Uh, but it felt at the same time as, as I was in a personal you know growth workshop, I was in a an acting masterclass and acting turned out to be the opposite of what I thought it was. <laughs> It it, tur it turned out to be not acting, yeah. <laughs> to be uh, to be present with skills as opposed to be presenting something. Uh, and so I think that that has helped me a great deal, especially because I do a lot of um, group coaching calls and I'm, and my the goal in group coaching is to be really present to a lot of dynamics, a lot of people, and it's you know these little Hollywood squares galleries on a on a Zoom video, and so there's way too much to take in in my mind, and I'm trying to be smart, and I'm trying to give value, and so to bring some of your work into those situations where I can think about breathing, you know, through and from and into the pelvic bowl where I think about releasing my breath through the roots, there's a way in which I feel like I became more present mm. and more effective without having to get better or smarter or try harder or or accomplish anything that that I became. And this 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 would have sounded absurd and self aggrandizing to me uh, three months ago, but I become an instrument of something as opposed to the wielder of the instrument. Yeah, that's beautiful, Howard. So I would say that's uh, so far, you know, my experience of those two days is still unfolding, but that's what uh, what percolates. It's lovely. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah. Well, Philip, th thank you so much for, for your, the generosity of, of spirit and wisdom and, and time. And I really, I really, really, really urge everyone to go find your work because I think it, uh, it in, a, in a very gentle, common sense way is, is a, a, a pointer towards how, how we turn the ship around, how we, how we live our legacy as, as human beings at this uh, really critical moment. So thank you so much. Such an honor to, uh, to spend this time with you. It's it's a joy every moment of it, Howard. Thank thank you so much. It's um, I I so appreciate the invitation and the um, the resonances that you make room for within the conversation. I really do. Oh, cool. Thanks. Wow. Well, I would love to hear what you, the listener, think about this conversation. You can comment on the Facebook post at. Uh, Facebook.com slash plant yourself. You can comment on this post on the blog, which is plantyourself.com slash three two six. 
I strongly urge you to get Philip's book. And if you get the Audible version, he reads it himself. So and he's a, a, a trained actor, so it's it's pretty easy on the ears. Um, but any, any way you can consume his work, I so highly recommend it. So quick reminder that the Plant Yourself podcast is free for everyone and it's supported by people who can afford to support it. So if you would like to become one of those people, you can just go to plantyourself.com and click on the right sidebar on the Patreon link and pledge an ongoing monthly contribution. When you do so, you also get access to 36 healthy habit huddles, uh, which I'm getting still getting feedback from people who find them extremely helpful. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear about that. And they are available for as little as a dollar a month to um, to become a sustainer of the show. So again, if you'd like to watch the video of this conversation, you can go to plantyourself.com slash three two six. You can also do a search over on YouTube, which is hosting the video. And if you're new to this show, you can catch up on hundreds of archived episodes over at plantyourself.com. In garden news, well, we had a lot of greens today, not so many blueberries. I've still been picking off the blackberries, boysenberries and raspberries one by one. But it looks like the greens are, are very abundant and the basil is coming in faster than we can make pesto. So if you live uh, within driving distance, drop me a line and uh, we'll be happy to send you home with some very fragrant basil leaves. I spent the morning in the kitchen cooking. I had a uh, my first video podcast, uh, vlogcast, vlogcast with Kathy Hester, who's a two time audio guest. She came over today and we had a lot of fun playing in the kitchen with the air fryer and bantering back and forth. And that should be out, uh, say, in about a month, if not a little bit sooner than that. Um, in running news, <laughs> I still have plantar fasciitis. It's getting a little better. I'm hurting it with a, a lacrosse ball that I cut in half. Philip Shepard actually suggested that because uh, he, he heard me talking about plantar fasciitis and he mentioned his own work with that. And um, so I think it's a little bit funny and ironic that the author of Radical Wholeness gave me the idea to uh, chop a lacrosse ball in half. Um, I went down to Atlanta to play in the uh, ultimate great grandmasters regionals. We came in third overall out of three teams. So we're not going to to nationals in July uh, unless something really weird happens. But now that means I can keep walking, keep stretching, keep doing melt method, total motion release, and hopefully in a couple of weeks be back up to running. Uh, this weekend, a whole bunch of friends are going to Leadville to do the, the Leadville Marathon in heavy half. And I'm only mostly glad that I'm not going to be there as well. It's a great race and it really kicked my ass last time. And uh, so a little bit happy to have that excuse to not uh, to not have to go. All right. So thank you to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use Sabali Don, the Dance of Peace as the theme song for this podcast. Check out willridenauer.com for more of his beautiful West African Kora music. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons, as in... Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Mara, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hadley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Burns, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ayrton, Jim Pilkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Victoria Dolmanova, Leia Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrew, Josina, Julianne Rollins, Stu Dolnick, Sarah Durkis, Francis Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Leanne Peterson, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzek, Jeanette Bennett, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Ruth Ann Funderburk. 
Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Stephanie Holmes, Martha Bergner, Nicole Renzi, Susan Ahmad, Molly Labini, Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Ashley Corcoran, Kelly Michia, Dean Norton, Bonnie Lynch, and Plant Happy Organs, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Coble, Shell Rutledge, Julian Watkins, Breen O'Connell, Brian Sheridan, Shannon Hirschman, Kate Roseland, Ayat, Julie Langholm, Hedda Gardy, Zatuzin Watt, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Aviva Lyle, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Lakoski of. Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Kelly Baker, Miracle Ann, Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Debbie Casilla, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosemary McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Cars, Dean Bishop, Bill Berry Elf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Tisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gun Marie Hagan. Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg for Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Joan Borstein, and Diane, uh, Diana Goldman for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for this week. As always, be well, my friends. So if you appreciate the Plant Yourself podcast and would like to help support the mission of the show, there's a few easy ways to do it. One is to just go to wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review. Let other people know about it. Give us some stars. Give us some love. And that really helps us be found by more people. Something else, of course, you can do is let someone know about this podcast, someone uh, who you think would benefit, send them maybe a couple of episodes that you think would uh, pique their interest, or just uh, ask them to subscribe in general. And third, you can join arms and become a patron, a financial supporter of this show. You may have noticed that there's no advertising in the show, and it's free for everyone, and it's supported, paid for by those who can afford it. So if you would like to make a one-time contribution or an ongoing monthly pledge, you can do so at plantyourself.com slash gift. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jean Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Barons, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Vizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elizabeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Andrews, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Kara Adams, Tom Fonsek, Jeanette Benham, Gail Assert, David Donna, Hubler, Cyber, Toronto Vizo, Gio and Carol Argitati, Jody Friesner with Ann Thunderbrook, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck. The Equally Mysterious, Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lineman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harpers and Martha Bergner, Susan Amon, Molly Levine, the Inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda, Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, The Plant, Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Shannon, Hirsch, Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzumak, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis... Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Orlikoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, and Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justine Divitt, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darmy Kelly, Lori Fanny, Lenae Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan McCorney, Stephen Leenan. 
Patty D. Martino, Mike and Donna Carson, Deanne Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bashford, Gun Marie Hagen, Tracy Gullis, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, Diana, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parham Ganchi, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt. Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidoroska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught, Abedible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, and Danielle Roberts for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for today. As always, be well, my friends. <laughs>